0: Thank you to Raise, presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's three-part podcast miniseries on digital assets. Raise is a Bahamian startup that's using distributed ledger technologies, a.k.a. blockchain tech, to build a platform which offers investors and everyday people easy access to liquid capital markets. To learn more about this offering and discover how to digitize your company's assets, visit getraise.io. I'm Andile Lemassugu, and coming up is a relaxed three-way conversation that we're hoping will spark a broader debate about the nature and value of digital assets within the context of the world's emerging digital economy. This episode is the first installment of the series, and in it, my guests and I will discuss the implications of some traditional theories which prevail on the continent that speak to what constitutes an asset. The aim is to gain a better appreciation for historical approaches to dealing with intellectual property in particular as Africa undertakes to construct legal frameworks and set standards for the use of digital assets. That is, to figure out how to go about administering their creation, registering their ownership, determining their value, and regulating their exchange. This conversation features two distinguished Cape Town-based innovators. My first guest hails from Zimbabwe. She is co-editor of the South African Intellectual Property Law Journal. She has authored a book called Intellectual Property Policy, Law and Administration in Africa, Exploring Continental and Sub-Regional Cooperation, and co-edited another book called Indigenous Knowledge and Intellectual Property. This lady also happens to be a fellow of the Cambridge Commonwealth Society and a co-leader of the Open Africa Innovation Research Partnership. My second guest is the African American entrepreneur who serves as head of innovation at Thomson Reuters Africa. While at Reuters New Media early on in her career, she helped to build and launch some of the first online news services for early internet sensations like Yahoo and AOL. Today, however, she heads up one of the seven innovation labs Thomson now runs globally, and indeed the only one so far based in an emerging market. Some notable successes in her current role include overseeing Thomson Reuters' Africa Startup Challenge and getting her team's agrotech financial inclusion initiative, dubbed Bankable Farmer, off the ground. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Ray's. Hi,
1: I'm Caroline Mube. I'm a professor of intellectual property at the University of Cape Town.
2: Hi, I'm Saida Nash-Carter, and I head up innovation across sub-Saharan Africa for Thomson Reuters, and I run our lab in Cape Town, which has now been rebranded to Refinitive Labs Cape Town.
0: Well, welcome to the show, Caroline, and welcome to the show to you, Saida.
2: Thanks, Antili. Thanks for having me.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, let's perhaps start with you ladies giving us a sense of your everyday, perhaps as a as a backdrop to the discussion we're about to have around... Uh, intellectual property, digital assets, certainly. I'll start with you, Caroline. Give us a sense of what being professor at UCT um, in the area of IP law entails for you.
1: Right. So I must tell you that this year is not a real year because I'm on sabbatical, so I'm not being what I'm supposed to be. I'm having a year off. But when I'm in the real world working, uh, what it would entail would be lectures, lots of interesting discussions with students, um, some interesting discussions with colleagues. Um, And so I think my days are mostly discussions about, you know, topical issues, what's hot, what's happening um, in the area of intellectual property.
0: Great. And uh, I'll add to that, you do your fair share of writing. Lots of published work out there.
1: Yeah. So I do a lot of writing uh, books, articles, and sometimes opinion pieces.
0: Insider, what is filling your time right now?
2: So the project that we're working on most heavily right now is something called Bankable Farmer and that is about connecting traditional financial services institutions to smallholder farmers um, by using alternative sets of data and a more novel approach to risk modeling in order to give those banks the confidence to lend. Um, so that's primarily what we do um, and what we're working on right now as a project um, but we spend a lot of our time talking to customers um, in the financial services space about what um, what's next and how we might be able to support them as a, as a partner.
0: I don't think Thomson Reuters qualifies as a startup, not not after being in existence, what, nearly a century or more?
2: More, 150 years now. Yeah.
0: Well, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Well, that's here's my point. A lot of what you do here, and I'm obviously privy to, to some of it because I follow your work, um, sounds very much like the typical startup. Um, Give me a sense of how, you know, the work you do at Thompson is positioned within the context of the greater whole.
2: Sure. So we are um, the innovation lab for the company, and so our mission is really to to think more like a startup, right? To identify opportunities for the business um, in partnership with um, our customers and other thought leaders in the market to make what's missing is kind of one of the terms that we use, right? Um, we have a wealth of information. We have really deep domain expertise in financial services, for example. Um, how how do we take that um, and package it up and create products and services that meet the very specific needs of the African context? Um, and so that process is probably a lot more like a startup than um, than some of the other um, activities that one might do in our traditional business. Here in the Innovation Lab, we serve all of Sub-Saharan Africa. We do have um, a couple of markets that we focus on primarily just because Africa is really big and very diverse. And so um, you can't do everything with such a small team. Um, So we focus primarily on um, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya and Rwanda and obviously South Africa where we're where we're based
0: And so, Caroline, what's your sense of the interaction between what's happening in the real world, quote unquote, and what's happening in the world of academia? You know, my parents being academics, um, (laughs) uh, you know, I I have to tread carefully here because I often feel like there might be a a sad disconnect between some of the really um, cutting edge work and thinking um, that happens Within the halls of places like the University of Cape Town. That doesn't quite filter through to the real world. What is your sense of within the scope of your your you know your domain um, or your knowledge you know area of, of how that exchange is going?
1: So I think the exchange has been stilted, like you rightfully say. Uh, we often when I say we am um, speaking about academics, uh, I'm thinking we often just work in our silos and speak to each other. I read a very interesting piece recently that said academics could change the world if they stopped talking to each other and started speaking to other people. And so I I do think there's a disconnect. Um, the disconnect probably has many reasons. Some maybe just physical, you know, where we're located up there at the foot of the hill, distant from everybody else. Um, And others might be perhaps a bit more nebulous, maybe culture. I'm I'm not sure. But there are clearly lots of reasons why the connect is not always live and real between academia and the real world.
0: There's no mistake in the fact that we've invited you both here, because I feel you're representative of two really important uh, pillars of society that have to contribute to Um, this conversation that we're hoping to spark with the series around what constitutes digital assets. What is our role as a continent in contributing to how these assets uh, and the platforms they sit on are protected or in fact, you know, serving humanity, certainly serving us as a continent. And so thank you again for you both being here, but let's start at the, you know, let's start with the basics. Uh, We have an IP expert here because I'd like us to create a bridge from the uh, the known, or at least the traditional, you know, frameworks around IP, around definitions of what constitutes an asset, and then perhaps we'll we'll build towards a, a better understanding of what that might mean within a digital economy context. So, Caroline, give me a sense of how an asset is defined in a classical sense, and. And and some of perhaps the traditional thinking that that speaks to one, you know, acknowledging its existence, um, being able to assign ownership perhaps to it, uh, recognizing you know the capture of value, and perhaps the exchange of that value. Start where you will.
1: Okay, so the basic, I suppose, uh, idea that I would share starting to think about assets in the intellectual property space would be to say you've got your tangible and intangible assets. You've got assets that you can touch, see, feel here sometimes, and assets that are nebulous. You you can't see, touch, feel or, or anything like that. And so I... That would be a starting point. And of course, when you have and intellectual property is an intangible asset, you can't always see, touch, or feel it, right? Um, it's, it's created by law. And so when you talk about defining an asset, what it is and how you attach value to it, in intellectual property law, often it's defined by a piece of legislation that says this is the thing and this is what it looks like. Um, valuation is it's different. Uh, normally, intellectual property laws don't quite engage with Valuing assets. So we look further and beyond for valuing. And I quite liked what I heard so I just speak about earlier about the bankable farmer because I'm thinking, hmm, these farmers probably have some intellectual property assets and they're not being banked or loans are not being extended to them because they can't attach a figure or value to those assets and so they cannot use them as collateral. So, when she spoke, I just thought I wrote that down and I thought that's really cool. And I'd like to go back to it later.
0: Op head on the way.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I actually love your um, distinction between tangible and intangible. Um, we mentioned earlier my role in Thomson Reuters um, as being sort of focused in a financial services space. But I think another really good example of what an intangible asset is really is news, for example. Reuters, most people, if you're not a banker, you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant, you'll know Reuters because of our news. So not only is it um, sort of an intangible intangible asset, it's also something that's future-facing. So you don't even know when you buy our news products, you're buying a promise that we will deliver you news in the future, right? Which is also a very interesting thing to wrap your head around when you think about what's tangible and intangible and assets from that
0: perspective. Saida, so you represent an organization that has been built on IP. I think it's safe to say when you consider that over the years, what's put Reuters to be in the position they are now, which is frankly one of the world's leading tech firms, is the successful leveraging of assets. In, in this specific case, IP. And then, you know, walking around your office here in Cape Town, I realized that I'd probably get into some trouble taking photos and sharing them without your permission because there's stuff on the wall I, I peeped that I'll keep to <laughs> myself. I suppose there's definitely an appreciation of the fact that i would not have the right to share what i saw on those walls without permission using that as a sort of diving board into this debate for you what's your sense of where we're at as an ecosystem as a society around framing assets ip and, and and where we all fit in
2: I mean, I think that's a a great and and really loaded question. I mean, I think we're we're very much on um, a quite unique and evolving journey when it comes to sort of not only digital assets, which are sort of expanding and have expanded, exploded, really, um, in the last decade or so, just in terms of what digital assets really um, means, um, but then you also touch on this point about sort of brand and trust and IP, and you know clearly Reuters is a um, a longstanding brand, as I mentioned, 150 years old, that has sort of built been built up over years of delivering on um, a promise to do something and to do it well. Um, but we all also have personal brands, digital brands and digital footprints now, which um, we all have to think about how to manage and um, uh, make sure that it is reflecting the brand that you want to have for yourself also. Um, And I think that's really interesting as we sort of continue um, to move forward on this journey is that you have these these large corporate brands um, like ours and others, but then you also have millions and millions of individual brands that are um, increasingly important. And the more people understand their own sort of brand and footprint and the value of those, I think the conversation will, will evolve and become um, even more fascinating over time.
0: I imagine it's topical now because of that very dynamic given, you know, the recent Facebook data breach. And I just, you know, I'm putting them out there as, again, the poster child for this problem at the moment. Um, They certainly don't, they're not alone in this regard. But I think really the breach of confidence in that regard is the fact that, you know, this dynamic you've, you've expressed is actually a reality. I own, as a user of Facebook, IP that has been compromised or potentially compromised by the fact that, their system was breached. And that, to my mind, should have some sort of implication in perhaps them being held to account in some way, perhaps some sort of recourse for me to be compensated in some way. You know, you're giving me a reason to be at this debate in my personal capacity, you know, in a way that perhaps has never been the case before. When I was growing up thinking about Reuters, you know, IP was something they did and something I perhaps perhaps got to participate in if i worked there so carol i want to ask you about your your view on this because as an academic as a published academic as a professor certainly you've probably been on to this dynamic for a very long time the connection between your ip and its commercial potential and or exploitation so give me a sense of how that might put you in a position to understand this better than the average person who perhaps doesn't see their twitter account or you know, the blog online as potentially as powerful or as valuable as perhaps a textbook of yours sitting on the bookshelf somewhere?
1: The first thing I thought of when you spoke, so I'm going to wander off a bit and then try and come back and answer your question. I thought about open access. And so when you say to me as an academic, what do you think about your writings, your books, your articles? Uh, Do you consider them to be an asset, potential commercialization? I'm like, yeah, but that's that's not my goal. My goal is actually to share my ideas. And so um, while I operate within this framework of copyright and protecting your rights, my goal is to go beyond that and make sure that my work is openly accessible. And so in the context of this um, conversation about digital assets and trade and things like that, I'm thinking, yes, we want assets to be identified, to be protected, but we want to go beyond that to sharing and open dissemination, I think.
0: Is that a personal view or is that a prevailing view, do you think? Because I, I, I sense that you might be alone on that ledge or at least a little lonelier than we'd like you to be. The fact is there's, there are billions and billions of, of dollars every year spent defining what constitutes an asset and protecting the rights of ownership to those assets. And what you're saying doesn't quite vibe with that in a way.
1: So what I'm saying doesn't quite vibe with that because you're probably thinking about the commercial entities that actually make money out of these things. So as the author of an individual textbook... I don't even know how much I get. I get next to nothing. I I don't even care. But of course, the publisher of my textbook makes a lot more money from the textbook. I mean, this is their business model. And so what I'm saying is probably a personal view of of individual academics. It definitely wouldn't be shared as a matter, of course, by commercial entities like publishers or recording companies because it cannot be, right? There's a whole business model around identifying assets, uh, protecting them and commercializing them on a grand scale.
2: A huge amount of um, research and development investment, um, from a commercial perspective, goes into um, creating IP every year, um, and so the protection of that is um, is super um, top of mind for most organizations, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, absolutely agree with that with that point. However, I think in order for us to really begin to solve for some of the bigger challenges that the world faces, um, Africa and other locations. I mean, these are climate change, poverty, um, access to water. These things are global issues. Um The IP that will be created that ultimately solves for these things will be joint IP Because there is no one single organization that is going to be able to solve for these things on their own And so I think there we need to create models and mindsets That allow organizations to first of all collaborate better um, and secondly um, defined legal frameworks that, um, protect individuals, all of them at the table when they create something new and figure out also how to commercially benefit from that together, right? So bigger pie, everyone gets to share more. You
0: know. Because I've been following your work side, uh, the work you've been doing here at, uh, Thompson labs, you, you said you've renamed the two
2: Refinitive. So thanks for asking. So I can clarify that. Um, so Thomson Reuters recently sold, um, 50, a majority share, 55% of their financial services business. And the new spinoff or the, we're calling it the six billion dollar startup as a company is called, um, Refinitive. And so, Our lab, since we were um, largely focused on financial services um, with the innovation work that we did, we are now a Refinitiv lab. So we're one of the innovation labs as a part of this new um, uh, Refinitiv company.
0: You know, and observe some of the projects that you've been involved with, and I've spoken to some of your team members. I sense that, you know, that impact narrative is a big part of how you determine what to focus on. Mm Uh, but because you're essentially a commercial vehicle, you haven't been able to sort of obsess over impact at the expense of commercial beneficiation, etc. I think it, that puts you in a really interesting position to talk about what this looks like, what you've just described. This idea that if we're going to solve the biggest problems we have on, in, on Earth, it's not going to happen unless we share IP. Does that somehow frustrate proponents of capitalism or (laughs) or, or people at your organization who are just out to sort of maximize shareholder value?
2: I think it may frustrate those with a fixed mindset or those who are, you know, happy to kind of live in the world that we live in. Right. I think. Those among us who have are more open. Those of us who actually believe that we have everything in our power to make the world a better um, place—it's exciting to those people. And I'd rather spend my time talking to them, quite frankly.
0: <laughs> so exciting because we do need to figure this out. It's we, we can't oversimplify how complex this might be for someone in your position, for example.
2: No, absolutely. Right. So we, we, we think a lot about, um, well, well, I have a, a firm belief that um, doing good and making money are not mutually exclusive ideas. I think that you can absolutely do both. Um, and I think that corporations, frankly, have a, a role to play in leading the way in doing that. Um, I think we have the resources, we have the access, we have the scale, we have the capital. And so we need more large companies thinking about Purpose driven innovation in that way. Um, And we need them not doing it in silos, but we need them thinking about doing it together in concert with academia, in concert with government, right? Because it is going to be a collective, community, um, shared goal sort of approach that's needed to make it happen.
0: So let's account for the elephant in pretty much every room when we discuss digital economy within the African context. We have a really difficult history on the continent, a colonial past, a fairly challenging present that's influenced, of course, to to some extent by what happened in the past, but also just by the realities of what it takes to compete in in a global environment that is increasingly becoming digital in nature. And so given that, reflect on... The limiting factors to the status quo with regards to IP. And I think a lot of those ideas within the modern context on the continent are not borrowed, but certainly adapted from a context we weren't a part of, you know, in the past, or at least a part of in the right way, with the right level of agency. But here we are in 2018, trying to figure this whole thing out and assert our, our rights as citizens, build assets, find ways to capture value, participate meaningfully, and, of course, trade that value with each other on the continent, in in the case of intra-Africa trade, but also with the rest of the world. So reflect on that for me, please, Caroline.
1: I like the bankable farmer, so I'm going to go back to the farmer. So let's talk about innovation, right? So... um... I think a lot of the discomfort that we currently have in relation to the intellectual property system as we know it is that it, of course, wasn't crafted fully with us. When I say us, I mean Africa in mind and for us. And so in certain aspects, it doesn't allow Africans to actually properly classify their assets and uh, generate value from them. So think about patent law, for example. In order for you to get a patent, you must prove that your invention is new, it has inventive step, it's useful in industry. Okay, sounds great, right? But the novelty aspect um, is... Is quite a thing, an inventive step, which means it's something that uh, someone skilled in the art wouldn't have thought obvious. Yes, it would have been something new to them. And so if we think about the innovations that our farmers are engaged in or anyone else, in fact, on the continent, mostly it's small incremental innovations, which when you put against that blueprint, then they, they don't fit. And so in that one sense, you can say, perhaps patent law is not the best way to protect all of the innovations that happen um, on the continent by farmers or whoever else. And so you'd be asking the question, what then can we do? Because we like patent law as it stands. It it works for certain industries. It's great, um, but it's not serving this particular subset of entrepreneurs on the continent. So what can we do? And so that's where I think um, most of what I write about is how can we then custom fit intellectual property law to allow us to actually identify assets that are created by entrepreneurs on the continent and allow them to generate value.
0: So where does the notion of education in that context fit in? Because I don't imagine that, you know, I mean my parents are farmers. Um, I'm thinking of our next door neighbors in Guatemala, Filabuzi, in Zimbabwe. I'm trying to imagine what it would take to get our village neighbours in remote Zimbabwe, Matabella and Zimbabwe, to be part of this conversation in a meaningful way within the context you've picked and who, who their champion in this regard might be, and where the activism for their rights in this regard or their participation in this regard might actually happen. What would you say?
1: I would think that we need to start with the objectives of this farmer neighbor of ours. So what are they farming for? To feed their family, to generate some income? Uh, what innovations have they come up? come up with in relation to their farming activities. Well, maybe they've crafted, uh, you know, a way of planting that's more efficient. Maybe they've bred some seeds that are pest resistant. Who knows what they've done, right? And so so I think the champion for our neighbor farmer is someone who is clear what the farmer's objectives are um, and what the value of what the farmer is doing Is I think once you have that, then the champion can go wherever they will um, based on what they have. And so maybe to ask myself my own question, uh, would our neighbor farmer be interested in patent law? Probably not. I mean, it's it's, it's a remote uh, concept um, that probably doesn't mean anything to them. But if you broke it down, and maybe this is the question of education, if, if you broke it down to explaining what an intellectual property right and an asset would do for them, then maybe the neighbor farmer becomes interested and perhaps wants to reach out to the system or custom make a system that works for them. So maybe that's the role of education.
2: I think that's a really interesting point, right? Because there, I mean, one of the things we know that um, lends itself to farmers being more or less successful is experience. And what you gain over time um, through experience is knowledge and your own way of sort of working the land and knowing what works and what doesn't work within your context. Um, And so it's interesting to think about how we might begin to understand that better, to quantify that, um, and maybe share that value um, in a way that delivers value back to the originator of whatever the new idea might have been. I think it's a really... um, Interesting idea to sort of think about that loop, um, even within the context of bankable farmer, and just in general, um, when you have, um, to your point, you know there are these frameworks around IP and and patent law, etc., which were built elsewhere. But we know that there's quite a lot of IP in our communities across the continent every day that people. You know, use in their daily lives that make their lives and other lives better. How do we identify those things, um, and and extract the right types of value from them and share them in the ways that are appropriate to share the value? Right. I mean, it's a really interesting idea.
0: Now, going back to something you said earlier, Caroline. You know, when you made the distinction between tangible assets and nebulous ones, uh, I think maybe that's why. You know, when I, when I think of some of the more politicized issues around the notion of assets within modern day Africa, it, I think it's because perhaps our cultures, uh, you know, have always been on the continent. Have always been very closely aligned to the tangible, and and I think there's a very emotional response to to how perhaps redress as far as tangible assets hasn't quite filtered through. Um, society is, as much as we'd like to see it, whether we're talking about land and, and perhaps the, the benefits that it's given colonial powers in the past, whether we're talking farming or mining. And I think we, the that notion is somehow related and needs to be addressed in a sense. I suppose my question is, how do we even start to talk about digital IP in the context of Africa being behind the curve in development terms, you know, when, with regards to digital matters? digital transformation when you know we're so far behind within the, the the traditional asset space you know whether we're talking land or resource ownership things of that nature how do we bridge that gap because it becomes pertinent as well when you consider the resources that need to come to bear to participate meaningfully economically how do we step forward how do we own that reality not agonize over it or, you know, throw pity parties or be mad about it, but pragmatically take a step forward.
1: So I want to take issue with the suggestion that uh, Africa is behind um, generally. I, I think, yes, maybe, uh, but there are places or areas where Africa is not behind. I think that there's a lot of innovation, a lot of entrepreneurship. I think that bearing in mind the contested uh past of Africa, the clear disadvantage that we have in relation to many things, I think that there are certain advantages that Africa has that can be seized. So I want to just maybe talk about technology. So so mobile technology is pretty widely dispersed in Africa, right? People have got mobile phones, which they are using for, for innovative things. And so I think that... Um, One moment that can be seized is using mobile technology in innovative ways to further entrepreneurs on the continent, whatever they are doing. I think that um, mobile technology is a useful platform to share ideas um, and even to undertake some trade um, as well. I mean, we've got mobile money that could be used as well.
0: Yes, so thank you for that. I'm actually, as you were speaking, I've just reframed my thinking. Um, Perhaps I often equate the notion of disadvantage with an inability or like a lack of agency, which I think I, shouldn't, I, sh- I should be careful not to do. But I mean, here's a, a great example. And I, and I take your point, Caroline, what do you make of this cider in the sense that, you know, we perhaps are in a unique position to define value, to reframe what constitutes an asset and to trade that value with the rest of the world. Like, wh- what do you perceive within the context of Africa as a technological Opportunity or a technological way we might surf in that regard?
2: I, I, so I moved to Cape Town to Hennepin Lab about three years ago and we launched the lab almost two years to this week ago, and when we were sitting down with the team sort of trying to define, you know, what's our mission, what's our vision, whenever we start anything, I start anything personally, and certainly professionally, we come up with this, I work with my team to come up with a statement that we all sort of, that's the goal. And in order to come up with that vision statement, we actually, we couldn't find the word to describe the African context that we were going to be operating within. And so we actually came up with one. And we call it inopositive. We think that the African environment is inopositive. And that means completely and utterly open and ready for innovation. And I think there are a number of things that sort of drive that. It's the mobile-only, almost, environment that we're dealing with here, which is interesting because in the West, we talk a lot about, like, mobile first, but what's implicit in that is that you have multiple other devices. So mobile is, you might start with mobile, but you've got a tablet, you've got a laptop, you've got a big-screen TV. Mobile is one of many. Whereas here, the mobile context, it's really sort of mobile only. You may have a laptop here and there, but it's far more mobile dominant. So that's one thing that we think is massively um, interesting in terms of the innovation opportunity, as you mentioned, all the things you can do with the phone and connectivity and have basically a small computer in your pocket. Youth, right, just how young the continent is, I think is a huge driver of just – Different thinking of um, unwillingness to sit still with status quo, like all these things, creative thinking, all the youth drive, all of that. And I think that's um, an amazing place to to be innovating in as well. The fact that we have, you know, so much here on the, on the continent, arable land, and, um, you know, the need globally for world food and, and the demand there uh, increasing exponentially over the next couple decades, massive opportunity, right? So we were thinking about all these different things together and, and came up with this this term. So I like, you know, the reframing of your um, statement into sort of what is the, the opportunity that we have here and what is it about Africa and the the uniqueness on the continent that positions us to lead and or chart our own course, I think is really the way to think about it as we move into the digital future.
0: We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about the presenting sponsor for this series, RAISE. Now, RAISE is a founding member of the African Digital Asset Framework, or Adaf, for short. ADAF is the first open-source software platform to create transnational standards for digital assets and distributed ledger technologies. In line with Pan-African development objectives, ADAF intends to complement the African Union's Single Africa Digital Market Initiative, which seeks to stimulate digitized Pan-African economic integration. Rays, along with Kotani and Alba.1, are proud to be co-trustees in and supporters of the African Digital Asset Framework. To find out more and to get involved with this groundbreaking open source initiative, visit adaf.io. That's A-D-A-F dot And now, back to the conversation. So, Saida, I'd like you to, to share from, you know, your professional history at um, AOL and now I remember AOL and not, not the other.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo. So um, so I actually was in, I was still at Reuters, Reuters New Media at the time. Um, but AOL and Yahoo were some of our first customers. So worked with them um, very early on uh, as they were sort of, as they were startups, actually. Just imagine how long ago that was <laughs> when you had a Yahoo as a startup. But yeah.
0: So, yeah, that's fascinating to think, you know, to think companies like AOL and Yahoo were once startups, which doesn't even feel like a thing because they're so huge, you know, in the same way you at some point, Thomson Reuters was a startup. But let's talk about this popular trend towards the average user of the Internet creating a digital persona and participating in in the digital economy. Because that's what I think of when I think of, you know, companies like Yahoo and, you know, today, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. What are they, if not platforms that allow us all to create digital versions of ourselves and participate in digital economy in ways that we were never able to do before? So, you know, reflect on that for me for a second and and how that may or may not have been the thinking at the time when you were interacting with what was then, I guess, the Facebook of the day, you know, in terms of, like, the social media platform to be to be reckoned with or the email company, whatever they call themselves back then, Yahoo. So, yeah, give me a sense of what it might have been like and what the conversations around these issues might have been back then.
2: So the, the one thing that comes to mind when you... Um when you talk about digital personas and sort of just the ubiquity of our digital lives these days, is, and also when you mention the AOLs, the Yahoos, the Facebooks, all the social platforms, Instagram, etc., the commercial models that underpin these platforms are is advertising, right? So they're, you don't pay because advertisers are paying for you to be on the platform. And I think an important thing for us to always remember is that if you are not paying for a product, then you are the product. And so being aware of that, conscious of that is, I think, just important. Um, I use Facebook. I use all those platforms. But I'm also aware that the privilege of using that comes with those organizations being able to use my my data in ways that um, benefit their clients, which are often the advertisers. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind.
0: I imagine back then, and we're talking, what, 10 years ago plus, 10, 15 years ago or more, um, that wasn't as politicized an issue as it might be today post sort of Cambridge Analytica and... You know, every other day, another data breach. You know, so what? What have we learned as a society, or at least those of us who who are educated enough to appreciate what's changed? What have we learned about both the pros and cons of the dynamic you've described?
2: Well, one thing I think I've learned on this journey is that um, these technologies, um, what the internet has opened up to us will continue to evolve, right? So in the early days of the internet going commercial or going to the consumer level, you had, I mean, as I mentioned before, AOL, they used to actually mail the internet. So it would come in the mail on a CD and you would load it into your computer and then, you know, you had access to the internet. And then you fast forward now, and then you, you would have, you have blogs, you've got um, social platforms, and now people actually get and interact primarily on the internet through the Facebooks and the um, Instagrams and, and the what have you. So I think for me, it's more about how the space and appreciating that the space is going to just continue to evolve. And in next year or five years from now, it may be completely different, and it's not social, but it's virtual, Right. And now we're in our own VR experiences interacting that way. Uh, So I think just being prepared and understanding the context that you're in as that context evolves is really all you can do. So just don't I think what's most important is just understanding as much about your current context as possible because it will change.
0: There's this hypothetical nightmare scenario I often play out in my mind of 10 years from now looking back and realizing that I literally sold my digital soul, my digital persona, you know, 10 years prior when I didn't appreciate the value of perhaps the data or the access to the IP I was creating online. And so, you know, I want to ask you, Caroline, what, what you make of the digital transformation journey we're all on and its impact on what you described as the nebulous assets that are already difficult to sort of pin down to some extent because of their very nature. How have you observed digital technologies impacting the notion of IP?
1: Every time technology changes, um, the IP world kind of cheers out its head and says, you know, we're just going to collapse now. It's not going to work. You know, it was the same thing with copyright and the printer, right? When books were printed for the first time, when the internet became a thing, oh, no, it's not going to work. And so I think that there's an initial reaction that says it's not going to work. But I think that experience now tells us that these legal systems can adapt um, to what technological advancements we are uh, faced with. So I think that it will get weirder. But systems should cope, should be able to cope. Um, if our response to what's happening, I think this is the point, um, that Seda was making as an, as an individual about being alive to your context and just keeping up. I think also that countries, um, need, I say countries because they are responsible for the regulation, right? So they need to be aware of the context and make sure that their policies and laws keep up. How on earth do you do that? By not being specific. So if you craft a law today that says this technology, if this happens, this is what it means. Mm -hmm. No, don't do that because technology is moving so fast tomorrow that will not be the technology. And so um, the law and policy needs to take a technologically neutral approach. Don't be specific about the technology. Think about the impact of the technology. What does the technology do? Think about the printing press, okay? It made it possible to copy books or to print books um, on a large scale. Uh, what about the photocopying machine? It made it possible. Mm, photocopying machine made it possible to make copies that sometimes did deteriorate. But now on the internet you can make near perfect copies and share them instantly, right? So what the law needs to think about is the impact of the technology and then think about what it wants to regulate pertaining to that.
0: We're going to talk about regulation some more in just a moment. I want to ask you, though, Saida, there's this uncomfortable question of what is this argument made by big tech or pretty much, you know, anyone who claims to trade utility in exchange for your ip your data or whatnot the the argument is like the value we create totally outstrips everything we're asking you to give up you know so let's take the example you you launched right at the beginning you're working on this initiative and i don't know how much of it you're comfortable sharing because i know it's in the works but around this whole farming initiative and on our show you know i've been known to critique some of these thinly veiled fintech plays that frankly um Give poor farmers phones they can't afford on credit, scrape their data in ways that they probably can't fully comprehend uh, or appreciate, and then sort of turn around and claim that, you know, they're saving the world by banking these people or giving them access to finance, and of course, giving them access to, to sort of analytics that they, 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 didn't, they wouldn't otherwise be able to have or market participation they wouldn't have been able to achieve on their own. And, and I sit there and go, there's just this question of, at what point do we hold people to account for that exchange that they're arguing they're making? At what point do we do we hold them to account and at what terms do you think?
2: So, I mean, I, I hate to have the answer, my answer sort of lead with individual responsibility, but I'm going to lead with that because I think I would be doing your audience a disservice and actually saying something that I don't believe to be true if we expect corporations to look out for the individual's best interest in every instance, right? I think on the whole, we are seeing a movement for large companies to be more purpose-driven, as I mentioned, to sort of care more about their footprint in the world and, and, and positive impact that they can make. But I think ultimately, we are responsible for our own lives, and we need to do everything we can to be... Educated about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and ultimately what that means for for, our, for ourselves. Um, and I, one other thing I wanted to sort of highlight as um, we're talking about sort of digital assets, because I think for your listeners this might be valuable. There's the footprint that you create. For yourself, so it's your Instagram page, it's your Facebook page, it's you know all your selfies and whatever else that you sort of put up in the cloud, and so that's you.
0: Well, they're not yours anymore because you signed that away. You've not given, away. you've told them that they own them as soon as you've shared them on their platform. By the way,
2: exactly, and that, so that is that's but that's the stuff that you sort of you're actively participating in and giving that information and using a platform, right? But then there's also your digital footprint that's less visible, right? It's sort of the tracking of your movement around the internet the things that you're searching for that they then know that you're interested in buying. I mean, so just being aware of that, I think, is a first step to just consumer protection at scale, just kind of understanding your role and, um, and how some of these technologies are able to monetize themselves on the back of individual activity. Um, and that's just important to, to keep in
0: mind. Absolutely. Now, I perceive a tension between the disruptive, decentralized nature of what the Internet is capable of and all the centralized power that resides within governments, institutions, etc. It seems to be from day one, there's been a tension, right? And, And so you just spoke earlier about how governments need to keep up. And regulate and there's definitely a refreshed sentiment around hey governments stick up for us like Google and and Thompson and all these other guys you know for better or for worse sorry I had to throw you in there just to be fair um, but all of these people are in it for themselves and and maybe for us sometimes, but you guys owe us a decent livelihood a safe place to live and work uh, etc and so you stick up for us but that Almost seems counterintuitive when you consider the success of the Internet being rooted on the fact that, you know, it has engendered democratized interaction, access to education, you know. So in the context of IP and digital assets, like how, how do we sort of speak to that tension or, you know, alleviate it in some way?
1: So I think that the tension is, is very real. Um, I think that uh, at a certain stage, uh, for many governments, policymakers, and lawmakers, it felt like the internet—the internet was the wild, wild west, some ungovernable space. Um, I, I think that we are past that. So I, I want to pull back a little. So I, I, I agree that governments need to to regulate the space, look out for for an individual. And remember, once again, um, the exhortation from Seiji that the individual needs to be primarily responsible for themselves. So this is a layered thing. You as the individual, look after yourself. The state has a role to play in policing this environment where we now all live and interact on a day-to-day basis. But I think that, and this is the pullback, the pullback is that you don't really want to over-regulate because a lot of the innovation, a lot of the trendiness is about this open space where it's easy to to innovate and and move forward. So I think that's the trick. Um, Regulate, but do not over-regulate, if that makes sense at all.
2: It it makes perfect sense, and I think it's it's really important, and I actually think it's the role that government can play when it comes to sort of enabling innovation um, because that's really what government... Should be rather than regulating innovation, right, and I think to your point um, earlier, Caroline, about um, setting contours and um, sort of statements around um, what technology should enable or what where a country is looking to go and then or or what might be Results that technology must avoid, for example, right? Like protections in general, rather than being specific around how you get there or what technologies to use or to not use. Um, Because I think what really brings um, true innovation is lots of people thinking about how to use this new tech. And that's also why I'm super excited about um, the African context when it comes to this, is that you have all these young people with technology in their hands, right? And so what's possible from that as they start to think about using these tools to solve problems in their communities, I think there's quite um, an interesting story that will be told there, is is being told and will continue to be told.
0: So there's this thing, though, uh, we also need to address another big elephant in the room. I sense that people, I, I call it the invisible elephant in the room. Uh, we have to account for the fact that Institutions have for many many years profited from what I call the engineered frictions that exist w- within markets in real terms, so whether you t- whether we're talking about physical borders that divide countries, um, the imaginary borders that make it really difficult for some reason to send like one dollar from here to neighboring Zimbabwe and why that should cost you a good thirty cents of that dollar to do and and and, and so there's a great deal of hope and optimism in some quarters that technologies like, you know, like blockchain technologies will usher in this new era of peer to peer trade that as we start to take, you know, take responsibility for ourselves and what we can do and should be doing mm-hmm. to protect our digital, you know, our digital footprints and our IP, you know, that we'll. Perhaps in this future, I can imagine us having full agency over the the IP itself and and benefiting in material ways, perhaps, from how that IP is exploited commercially uh, or otherwise. So there's a hope that there will be this new era of peer-to-peer trade, that it might eliminate the need for intermediaries that have been taxing society and perhaps unfairly for many years. And perhaps the ones that remain will remain on the basis of value. And, And essentially, you know, there'll be this widespread democratization of the world's economic system that currently is dominated by a few powerful actors who wield centralized control over markets. And so in some ways, I recognize some of those notions as wishful thinking, (laughs) the pragmatic side of me. But I do sense that there's certain things that may, you know, be realized, or at least a version of those things that might be realized. You know, Caroline spoke about the initial tension that institutions and governments perhaps had towards the internet as a technology that would potentially disrupt them altogether. I feel like we have a new wave of that again. And... There's a gung-ho extreme that's, you know, blockchain this and Bitcoin that and hodl, 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 you know, which is, I think, unhealthy. But I think there's some things that we might well we might do well to reflect on and, and, and sort of ask ourselves, how do we harness that sentiment and weave it into companies like yours, you know, at Thomson, Reuters? How do we influence the policymakers listening to us right now to not see this as a takeover or something of that nature.
2: Well, I mean, I I personally think it's really exciting to think about a global electronic currency, sort of value transfer cross-border Cross continent, I think it's super exciting to think about that and the possibilities that come with that. Um, is it Bitcoin? Is it something else? You know, I, I don't know what the currency will be, but just the, the fact that there is a framework there that can facilitate that is awesome to think about, right? And I think that we need to have. Um, you know, as many people as possible, thinking about how how to experiment with that, how to to make sure that whatever this new framework is is accessible and inclusive, um, so that while we're off building this new global um, network and framework for us to to transfer value, you don't leave half the world behind because they're not connected to it. So I mean, I think the possibilities there are quite are quite endless. I would actually l- like to not have to pay my bank, you know, fifty dollars every time I want to move dollars from the U.S. into South Africa, for example, right? And this could potentially help with that.
0: <laughs> Someone is has vested interest here.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so no, look, I mean, what do you make of of, of this, Caroline?
1: Just to piggyback off that, I mean. I think that policymakers need to listen to our vested interest, right? So in considering what needs to be done, what the possibilities are, I think the voices of individuals, the voices of commercial entities, the voices of all stakeholders must be heard. So I, I, I fear that perhaps what is perceived as this perhaps negative um, possibility, we're so scared we don't know what we're going to do, is because we haven't spoken enough to each other or listened enough to each other. And I think that the way to break this perhaps would be to generate um, a a widespread African discussion about what the possibilities are and where we could be going.
0: That's really well put. Uh, I'm going to close by reading a quote from the the AU's Commissioner for Infrastructure and Energy, Dr. Amani Abuzaid, who is quoted as saying, In order to accelerate the creation of a single digital market for Africa, there is a need to have similar or common rules across the continent to ensure a more predictable legal environment for companies trying to scale across the region. This implies pursuing a strategy of harmonization and building bridges between regulators and policymakers pretty much sums up a lot of what we've discussed here today. But I want to ask one final question of you both. That is a really sort of aspirational statement. Um, There seems to be a lot of this rhetoric floating around, and I'm, I'm excited by it, but I'm also sobered by the fact that we're dealing with 54 sovereign states in what is arguably the world's biggest unrealized economic opportunity. I want you to to give us just one sense of where we should start. Speak to, take your pick. I mean, we have policymakers listening to us right now. We've got um, founders. We've got um, executives like you, Saida. We have um, academics like you, Caroline. Uh, We have tech professionals. We have, you know, business professionals. We have students um, in our universities, perhaps even younger, all listening to us right now.
2: Um, hmm. I mean, it's a good question. I think, and it's, and it's going to be, a, it's a really you know, hard problem to solve. I think with hard problems, it just comes down to the people that are trying to solve it. So I think one of the first things for the AU or any organization that's trying to solve for this is to make sure that they have the right team solving for it and that it's not just the guy with the title At the table, but that is actually someone who is a natural collaborator, someone who is able to listen, someone who has the soft skills to actually get in a room with people who may have different perspectives, different backgrounds um, and can be in a diverse team, add value and learn. And I think it really from that perspective, because I feel like conversations at this level happen all the time. You get lots of people. First of all, it takes forever to schedule Right Because everyone's calendars are all over the place, and then you finally get the meeting to happen, and then not a whole lot does because there's not the right people in the room, and how you do that, I mean there are probably people, the org design people that can help people figure that out, but it once you're in the room and're you're, you're committing the time to trying to solve for a challenge of this scale, who's at the table makes all the difference and make sure that there are women in there because by definition we're better
0: collaborators. <laughs> Um, I cannot help but just co-sign that fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Facts. Practical step, like get the right people in the room. I love that, Saida. What would you say, Caroline, as a parting shot? Inspire us with, you know, one next step.
1: Okay. First, I will not pass up the opportunity to say to Saida, here, here, definitely, <laughs> 100% with everything she said. Um, for me, when you spoke, when you started, you said, oh, 54 African countries, and I kind of, I deflated. I don't know if you notice. I'm thinking, oh, you know, your face did go. <laughs> it's a huge continent. So, so whoever wants to take a stab at solving um, this opportunity, I don't want to call it a challenge. This opportunity, I think, needs to be in mind that this is a very diverse continent. Um, the countries here are at different places of development, and so the one word that I've had, you know touted at many of these things is differentiation. So, which countries are we talking about? Where are they? What uh, what are their goals? And so I suppose once again to use another Hackneyed cliché one size does not fit all. So whoever's at the table, the right people, when they start to to really figure this out, we're not looking for one solution. We're looking for a multi-layered solution that needs to fit the different contexts on the continent.
0: I think that's just as good a place as any to put this down. Ladies, I have to thank you so much for getting this conversation started to our listeners, this is by no means an exhaustive exposition. That's not what we we're going for here. We're really just kicking off what we hope will be a long and rich conversation with very tangible outcomes. Um, and I see use that carefully, obviously, because we're talking digital economy issues where, you know, you can't often see what's happening. But we, we definitely hope that, you know, we might point to this very conversation as, you know, the match that sort of got the hay burning. And so, ladies, I want to thank you once more for being here, Um, Asaida Nash-Carter of Thomson Reuters, and of course, Professor Carol uh, Nubeh of the University of Cape Town. I'd like to thank you both for your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me.